0: what's up biker fans in this episode i interview to optics founder joe early this episode first aired as part of the build cycle podcast which if you're unfamiliar is my other podcast series about entrepreneurship and startups i wanted to share it here as well because the very first time i saw to optics in a bike shop i knew something was going to happen with this brand well they've grown and grown and grown and what's remarkable is in this day and age of the doom and gloom of brick and mortar tofosi is still very much focused on retail and that means driving it through retail sales reps and then bike shops and outdoor shops and running they've expanded into golf and their latest series is even for gaming which helps block the blue light from the screens something i'm interested in testing because i'm sitting in front of a screen writing bike rumor stuff far too many hours every day so I figured you guys might find this interesting as well because it really tells the story of how they got into bike shops how they got their start where they've taken it from there and how they continue to grow so I hope you enjoy this if you do hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast player without further ado here's Joe Early from Tofosi Optics so Joe thanks for coming on the build cycle podcast uh, you started this company with your wife Elizabeth, and was there anybody else involved?
1: No, it was uh, it was just the two of us. Um, we started the brand together in uh, in two thousand three. Um, we've been working together pretty much our entire married life, so this was just uh, the next uh, the next venture.
0: Uh, what were you doing before this?
1: Uh, we were independent reps in the cycling industry, so we sold, you know, every type of product you think of. We sold a clothing, we sold clothing, helmets, uh, the bikes themselves, um, you know, nutrition and and eyewear.
0: Hmm. Okay. What if you want to say what brands of eyewear?
1: Uh, we rep several different brands. Uh, at one point, we were reping Spy. Um, we rep Rudy Project at the time, and um, they were fantastic. But as an independent rep in the cycling industry, those are commission-only jobs. So, you know, we would make a, a com- good good commission when we sold the initial display to a shop. Um, and then we'd come around, you know, once a month and be looking to place reorders and then if i have sold a pair of sunglasses and then be like, you know, Mr. Bike Shop, this is great. Um but, you know, I mean to we need to write more than one sunglass when we need to even stop the car. So consistently we were asking them, you know, how could we sell more sunglasses? What what did they need um from a product standpoint or price standpoint? And consistently the feedback we got from our retailers was that if they had something
0: that uh, was a little bit more reasonably priced, they thought they could sell more. Hmm. Yeah, because uh, Spy and Rudy, you know, the retail pricing on both of those, at least back in the day, I don't know how it is now, um, they were not cheap. They were, they were both brands trying to go after that premium market and create a premium kind of value proposition for their brands. I would guess, yeah. you would know better than me, but I would guess $100 plus per pair, right?
1: That's certainly the average was $100 plus. So, you know, the, the market for that, when you're talking a general cycling consumer, was, it was just small. You know, someone who's buying a three dollars or $400 mountain bike at the time um, is not going to drop down, you know, 100 to $150 on a pair of eyewear as well. So, you know, we, we, uh, we, to be honest, we started looking for something to represent first. We called rep friends in other territories and said, hey, you know, do you see something like this? Um, and at that time, in, in when we launched the brand in the early 2000s, um, interchangeable lenses were the most popular feature, you know, um, that was kind of the the main thing that we were latched onto looking for. Said, so, you know, do you see something out there that has three lenses that retails, you know, for under $100 or well under $100? And consistently the feedback we got from rep brands was either, you know, no, I don't see it, or yes, but it's it's not, it's not very nice. Um, So, you know, we knew it could be done. One of our, one of our customers at the time, Performance Bike, was selling, you know, private label eyewear uh, that came with three lenses and a hard case and retailed for $50. And um, so we, we, we knew it could be done, uh, but we just didn't see it in the market. So that's when we, we started kind of looking for something on the sourcing side to, uh, to bring it to market.
0: And where did you start? I know, like, for me, going to Eurobike and Interbike, there's always the Asian supplier section that has people who will make anything you could possibly imagine. Is that where you figured out how to get it made, or what was your start?
1: Well, we started um, reaching out online to different places, and then I made a trip um, to Hong Kong, actually. there was a, There's a, a worldwide optical fair that happens in Hong Kong um, once a year. And so I went there and met with probably... 200 plus different factories um and specifically it was a long three days um specifically asking you know for uh, a product that that would come with interchangeable lenses and really after spending you know three days meeting with a lot of folks we came back and said hey we found four that could do kind of what we what we wanted uh anyone we met with with could copy a, a a sunglass but Really, kind of having the quality, and we're already doing um, products similar to what we were looking for. It was a pretty, it was a pretty small list.
0: Yeah, I would imagine that just the two of you, unless one of you has a design background, you'd be leaning pretty heavily on them, or have to hire somebody on to do the designs and create the shapes. And then you, I mean, there's probably a lot more that goes into a pair of sunglasses than people maybe realize, because I think it's the whole curvature of the lens has a big impact on how how accurate it is in portraying what you're actually supposed to be seeing
1: yeah it's a it's a a much more complicated process than people um people thought now when we started the line in 2003 um, we worked with factories on existing molds so we we negotiated exclusives for north america to sell that particular shape in north america without someone else buying it but we didn't invest in molds to begin with and you know real quickly we figured out that we could do pretty good products that way but that wasn't the way that we were going to our company has really been founded on really three principles. One has been the product, having lots of um, technical bells and whistles, you know, interchangeable lenses, adjustability, ventilation, um, as many bells and whistles as we could put into a product. We, we kind of always try to have that on the sport side of things. The value for the consumer and margin for the retailer is kind of the, the second leg of the stu- stool. And then the, the third leg of the stool has always been the customer service aspect. You know, if you call our company, uh, a person answers the phone. Um we try to call our dealers once a month and see how they're doing and see if they need things. Um, but, you know, when we were kind of going through the the process um, starting with open molds, we couldn't completely win that, that first leg of the stool until we started developing our own products in year, year two. Right. So that was uh, that was definitely a, a big learning curve, learning, you know, how to develop the product from a fit standpoint, from a feature standpoint. Um, you know, in those days we were getting carved wooden, samples um to try on uh sla were not really happening in the eyewear category very much so it was um it was a it was it was a much longer process than it is now and like i said it is quite complicated when you're talking about a an eight base wrapped um design
0: yeah explain eight base just for people who want to geek out on that for a second
1: just the, the, the the curvature of the lens so the smaller the number um the flatter the lens so if you talk about a two base or a four base um lens that's something like your your traditional wayfarer um pretty flat optically very good because it doesn't have a lot of curvature but doesn't provide as much wrap and coverage as when you get up to a seven or eight base product which most of our sport product is is an eight base wrap so it's just kind of the the amount of curvature that you add to the lens. The more curvature you add to a lens, the more possible distortion you have. So we decenter the optic. That means we vary the thickness of the lens so that when you cut the lens, the optical center is in the middle of of you know the finished product, and so you get great um, optics in them. Um, but but anytime, anyone, any brand, anytime you add curvature, you are you know adding more. Um, more complication to the process optically
0: yeah but and i would imagine too just i mean maybe not so much now with the software available but i would imagine trying to create a multi-curve lens that you can slide in and out of a frame has got to be a nightmare for somebody
1: <laughs> yes it was uh you know the 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 processes and you know having a let's say a for instance a full frame and the consistency of production—that was one of our uh, challenge um, to begin with, because not a lot of factories were doing this type of work, making products that you could interchange the lenses on them. So, um, you know, get, keeping the consistency from one production to the next was something that, um, you know, it was definitely it was definitely a challenge. Um, we were really fortunate to partner with some some really good um, folks that, um, from a production standpoint, that, that we still use one of our original factories today.
0: And were you? Did you start working directly with the factories, or did were you working with an agent that would help with the translations and everything?
1: Um, well, I mean, it's a it's a combination. So there's trading companies, uh, and then there's some trading companies that own um, the factory or own part of the factory. And so um, we were pretty connected directly with the factory, and in some cases, we had a trading company that kind of helped through some of the
0: processes. Right on. So when you first started, I'm curious, like what were some of the minimum order quantities that you had to do and how many different styles did you launch the brand with?
1: So we had a total of 24 SKUs when we launched the brand in 2003. Um, 300 pieces per color per style. So, um, you know, not massive, but when you're talking about um, from from ground zero, you know, it was uh, certainly a a leap of faith to begin with. Um, All the initial inventory, was something that you know we bought with with personal um, personal cash or with uh, you know leveraging our, our retirement accounts um, at that point to um, to buy inventory. So we went from zero to 400 dealers our first year to a thousand the next year, and then you know in the U.S. right now we probably have around 3,500 distinct um, doors that we ship to. So the the, uh, the curve of, of uh, cash flow and need for inventory was something that was pretty steep there for a while, um, and it's probably still one of the, the biggest challenges for a small business um, with a, in, you know, a, a business like ours that has a very distinct bell curve of uh, when the season is and how long the season is, um, it, does, uh, it does require a crystal ball to figure out what your inventory needs are sometimes.
0: Yeah, that's pretty big growth. And so of those 400 first stores in that first year, how many of those had you already been calling on? Because 400 stores, even for a two-person team, you and your wife, that's that's a lot of accounts to call on.
1: Yeah, so we um, we started in the southeast where we were based. Um, we had actually three other reps on the road for us in the southeast at that time and our, our sales agency. So we were still doing that business at the time. And then we hired, I think there was a total of six territories. So... Being independent reps for a dozen years, we knew who the really good reps were in other territories, um, and so we were able to kind of um, work with people we knew, you know, and, and even most of the time we didn't tell them that we owned the company at that point. It was, hey, we've got this new plan that we're representing. Um, do you guys are you guys interested in, in selling it? And so we know who the good reps were. We started with a handful of those guys, um, and they combined with us helped to uh, you know to get. Um, to get things going, we hired one customer service rep uh, right off the bat and had basically one employee who was uh, handling all the incoming calls and helping processing orders with Elizabeth and our existing, you know, a uh, couple of office people that we had for the rep business we did already have a warehousing facility. We were doing shipping on the East coast for one of the companies that we represented. So we already knew how to pick pack ship and already had a warehouse facility for that. So that part of it was, um, was actually probably the easiest of it.
0: Hmm. So I got to ask, like, do you think you could have pulled this off if you had not had that experience in those contacts and you kind of the resources that you had to start with?
1: Absolutely not. I mean, to be honest, I think, you know, there's, we see it a lot, and, and I think you see it in, in lots of different places. People have a great idea. They have a great product. Um, they may have good designs on it, whether it's the sunglasses or whatever widget they might be selling. But they don't. They either don't know how to get to the market or they don't know how to sell to the market. And that's uh, that's something that we had a pretty big advantage on. We knew who the good reps were. We had good relationships with them. And the fact that our agency was representing Tofosi, was kind of, uh, helped legitimize the brand to other agencies. Cause we were representing, you know, top tier brands in, uh, in our own, um, territory. So we were known as, um, you know, a good sales agency out there. So it kind of, it really helped us to get, uh, good reps and get, uh, get those guys going and, and, you know, some of those guys are still representing the product now, um, from 2003 to today. they're still, uh, some of our, some of our initial reps are still on board selling the product.
0: Is that still, in this day and age, because you know we're talking about what, like, almost 15 years now since you started with that network to the current scenario where bike shops and some independent sporting stores are kind of hurting, is, it, is that rep network still the best path to market for a brand?
1: That's a good question. Um, I think the answer is um, it depends on what their, what their business model is. Um, if you want to get direct to the consumer now... It's so much easier than it was in 2003. You know, um, there wasn't uh, one e-commerce was a no-no um, in the bicycle world. I mean, we sell to a lot of different markets at this point, but in cycling, you know, a brand to sell on their own website that was a no-no. That was a definite something that the the retailers uh, did not want and and pushed back on pretty hard. They were very afraid of e-commerce and. You know, so really the only way to get to the consumer at that time was through through a dealer network. If you want to build, uh, you know, a retailer base in independent specialty retail in the U.S., I think reps are the only way to do that. If you want to go just straight to the consumer, there's lots of ways to do that now. I mean, with Amazon, you can get in front of, um, you know, you can get in front of millions of eyeballs every day. And, you know, the barrier to get in front of those eyeballs is so much lower than it used to be. So, you know, it was the right way for us to build a brand. We've always been a very dealer, uh, wholesale-oriented company. And, you know, that's kind of how we cut our teeth, and that's how we, we built our business. Uh, it's certainly changing some now because we are trying to grow our direct-to-consumer portion of our business. Um, but we have to do that in a way that makes sense with our retailer base.
0: So, finding a good rep like you guys had an advantage because you knew where they were if somebody were starting out what's how do you find good reps for let's just use the outdoor sporting goods market since you're familiar with that like what's first of all where do you find them? how do you even find them in the first place, and then what would you look for for uh to find a good rep that's gonna do you well or a good agency
1: yeah i mean there's there's uh it's interesting in the, the dynamic of what you may be looking for. Um, can be kind of complicated because you can find a rep in, say, cycling or outdoor who has fantastic brands and is a reputable, good rep, but if you're a startup company who has zero sales, it's going to be really difficult for you to get that rep to, one, pick up your line, uh, and number two, even if they do pick up the line, you know, to pull it out of the bag. You know, if they have four, five, six, seven different, you know, good lines that they already represent... Coming out of the bag eighth or ninth is going to be a serious challenge because, you know, the, the rep only has so much time when they're in a retail door to actually make a pitch and sell somebody a product. So, um, how do you find them? You got to start building a network. And how do you build a network? Find other companies that sell complementary products or products that you think, you know, uh, need the same type of service that you do. So, to once you have a door open in the cycling industry, it's still what we call a count and fill line. So you're looking for reps that are, have a higher frequency in their accounts and they're coming in consistently that they have no problem, you know, kind of getting, getting down and dirty and counting the number of display pieces that are on a display, checking under for back stock, make sure that's cleaned up. And then just telling the dealer, Hey, you needed 12 sunglasses today. Here's the order. So it's you basically just going in and counting and filling up and, that shouldn't take them much time once they get up and going. Some reps aren't geared for that type of business. If they're, you know, a clothing rep, they're on a couple of times a year, they're doing big runs where they're doing big presentations. If they're doing primarily um, bike brands, they're gonna see fewer doors than somebody who does accessory lines. So it's finding the right mix that fits with your product. You know, asking dealers, hey, who's a good rep in the territory is a good way to start. And then also, you know, trying to build your network, talk to other sales managers uh, or other companies to say, hey, who is a good rep in territory X, Y, or Z? And then once you get some good reps on board, most of the reps have a good network. And they know by going to other sales meetings, going through all that process, they know, hey, um, Rep Y does a great job in Southern California or You know, Jimmy up in, you know, New England is a good rep and he represents these things. He's not doing a complete, complete competing product. So it's really about, you're going to have to kind of piece by piece, build that together. Opening up and having a nationwide sales force immediately um, is a bad idea to be perfectly honest. That's why we started with six. You want to start with a smaller group, make sure you understand how to make them successful what kind of assets they need. Once you have that dialed in, then you can expand the rep force from there. But you always want to kind of take it in bites that you can continue to support them. Because sales reps, there's a, there's a window of transfer of enthusiasm. Their first 30 to 60 days of you know, them representing your product, that's going to be when they're paying attention the most. And if you can make them successful in those starting points, then you're going to be able to make that be a successful rep. But if you get outside of that 60- or 90-day window and they're not writing orders, the chances are you've, you've wasted your time and their time and you're going to just have to hire somebody else in that territory. And that's um, so that's something I caution with folks is to just take it in smaller bites. Don't try to go across the board unless you've got the manpower to go out and travel with them and make sure they're going to be successful.
0: All right. That's actually a great segue. You mentioned you know giving them the assets they need to succeed into – kind of marketing but i want to segue from into marketing by talking about the retail presence you guys had because i remember when you first started showing up in stores you had a point of sale display where all the glasses were merchandised and people could handle them try them on which is i think hugely important for eyeglasses people want to see not just how they look in them but how the lens colors work and everything but that's um something maybe startups aren't thinking about is how it's going to be merchandised in the store and where the dealers are going to put that merchandising what was what all did you have to provide to the retailer and to the rep in order to get good placement and make the product visible once it was in the store?
1: Yeah, great, great question. So you know, in in eyewear, and I think in a lot of categories, um, you know, the the point of sale piece is incredibly important. In in eyewear, it's just the most essential thing. For us, our business plan to begin with was not to be any type of consumer push model. We said, hey, we're going to build the best sports eyewear we can, we're going to make it you know a, a price that's really attractive for the retailer we're going to try to place a display in the retailer and when a consumer sees it and sees the price because everything's pre-priced and pre-barcoded then they're going to buy them from there and that that worked very well but we pre-packaged them so both from a rep standpoint and from a dealer standpoint we made it pretty simple for them you can buy display X display Y or display Z you know I think to begin with we had 12 and 36 piece displays. Now we have 12, 24, 36, 60. We even have a 90 piece display that some wow. retailers take. We have a lot of retailers who take multiple displays. So they might merchandise, you know, our new lifestyle category on one display, and then they'll merchandise our technical product on a secondary display. But having that point of sale uh, be professional, look good, that is that we consider those touch points. So we didn't have a lot of, you know, we didn't have private equity money. We didn't have big loads of cash to start with, so or even now. We just said, hey, we've got to have the display be something that looks great and that the consumer is going to help legitimize the brand when he sees it. Same thing for, like, our catalog and our website. Those were touch points that we said, hey, we want to invest in these because, you know, nobody's going to come to Watkinsville, Georgia, and see our, our offices, but somebody's going to see those things, and we've got to make sure those are, are are um, really really strong. Still today, uh, POP displays are the largest marketing line item in our budget um, by far.
0: Hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about pricing as a marketing tool because you mentioned that that was it came in pre-priced. And you know when I, I mean I swear this is I'm not trying to like impress you with what I'm going to say, but it's when I saw it and I saw the price, uh, the first thing in my head way back in the day was these guys are going to kill it and. It was because, like I said, you know, the, everything else going in there was a hundred dollars plus. And if I remember right, I think you guys were starting at like twenty nine ninety five up to like maybe forty. You know, like basically thirty to fifty bucks for a pair of sunglasses. Is that about right?
1: Uh, you're you're spot on. You remember two thousand three well, so we were twenty nine, thirty nine, and forty nine. Forty nine being actually our most popular product. Um, that was the interchangeable family three lenses case um, and retailed at forty nine ninety five. And, um, you know, our, our, our idea was, you know, we're not going to pay professional athletes. We're going to keep our overhead very lean. We're based here in Watkinsville, Georgia, not Southern California. So we can afford to be of value to the consumer out there, and we think we put that type of product in front of them that they'll buy it. And, um, and we, were, we were fortunate, and that was the case. We got distribution through the sales network, and we were able to place it into shops. But what really helped us is that it checked. And so right away these dealers, you know, they in the eyewear category back in two thousand two when we started, two thousand three when we started shipping product, you know, this was a very small category for the cycling market. They didn't sell a lot of eyewear. If they turned, you know, their their hundred dollar plus eyewear once a year, they were doing well. And what they were finding with us is they were getting multiple turns and they were getting fast turns because of the the pricing strategy that we put out there. And so suddenly, we had this great word of mouth, even among dealers, that hey, man, you guys got to look at this. This is selling great, um, and they hadn't experienced that before. So it was uh, it was exciting.
0: That's cool. I, it actually, I, I'm kind of curious about the flip side of that because there's I think there's two concerns you could have about having a really low price product. The one is people might think it's a low quality because of low price. And let's talk about that one in a second. The first thing though, or the next one is um, from a retail standpoint, let's say you go in with a pair of sunglasses that retails at 30 bucks, meaning so the shop may make 10 or 15 bucks on that sale. Whereas if they sold a hundred dollar pair of glasses, maybe they're going to make 40 or 50 bucks. And so for them, it's like, well, if I'm going to put my energy into selling a pair of sunglasses to the consumer, I'd rather sell the pair that I'm going to make 40 or 50 bucks on instead of 10 or 15. So, did you have some retailers not interested because they thought they weren't going to make as much money for just the same amount of effort?
1: Absolutely. You know, it was something that that some of the premium stores, you know, guys who were selling $5,000 road bikes, you know, wide open, um, REI, when we opened them up, that was a concern of theirs that they said, you know, we sell a ton of $150 polarized sunglasses. Uh, we, don't want, we don't want to sell a less expensive model because we're just going to be selling down. And what we were able to show them is that, you know what, return in the same door six to seven times as fast as your $100 plus sunglass. So we more than make up what they might be missing there. And at the same time, what we've been able to show, and, and we, we were pretty sharp on this to begin with, we picked a couple of really good retailers and said, hey, let's go ahead and do a case study on this. Let's see what happens to your high-end sales in comparison. We want to see how fast we turn. We want to see how fast they turn and compare that to prior. When, a, when somebody comes in to buy a pair of Oakleys, they're coming in to buy a pair of Oakleys. Okay? I mean, that's that guy and that girl, they're, they're about that brand. They're about that lifestyle. They're about that brand. And they come in and, they come in to buy those. Um, what we find is many times they buy a pair of Tifosi's as well. But they don't usually say, "Oh, well, I was going to buy a pair of Oakleys today, but then I'm I'm transferring over and I'm buying a pair of Tifosi instead." What they actually did was just open up their consumer base to people who weren't going to buy a pair there anyway. And what we've seen over time is that that's even grown, um, I think, more prevalent for us but with online becoming so much bigger. With some of our um, competing brands, and you know, we sell against Oakley and, and Luxottica all day long, and and they own Sunglass Hut and. When, they're, when they have that type of choice on their website, you know, somebody's going to spend 150 $200, they want to get it just right. They want to buy, get the exact earpad color, lens color, and it's difficult for a specialty retailer to have that type of selection out there. Whereas with our product being sub $100, they see it, it's there, they see the price, you know, it's, it's almost an impulse buy. they just buy it right there. Um, so it's not usually an either or in the same retailer. And we, we saw the same thing, you know, when we picked up some of our larger guy retailers out there that, you know, they were concerned about that, bringing that in and, you know, sitting down with them six months later, they didn't see a drop off there. What they found is it was plus business for them. Hmm.
0: So what about the other aspect of that, which is convincing people that it's, it's, a, still a good quality product, even though the price is less, because without, a ton of marketing behind it, and you're almost relying on that point of sale display to do the selling for you, how did you convey a, that this was, you know, a good product, a quality product, when it's also a third or a quarter of the price of the other stuff out there?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's probably our biggest, I don't want to say it's our biggest challenge, but it's, it's one of those things that we certainly get asked, you know, well, if they're so great, how come they're a third of the price of brand, you know, uh, the $150 brand? And you know, our answer is always one, well, we're based in Watkinsville, Georgia, and you know, we don't pay professional athletes. Now we don't have the marketing budget to tell everyone that. So what we do and I think what's worked for us is when somebody picks up a pair of our glasses off the rack, they really, you know, because of the time and effort that we put into that, you can tell a difference right away. It doesn't feel like a twenty dollar sunglass, it doesn't feel like a gas station glass because it's not. It has that same feel as high price brand. So we're putting all those bells and whistles into it. and we also did a great job of PK and you know product knowledge sessions with the retailers that you know they totally believe in our brand. They are completely behind us, and we offer a lifetime warranty uh, against any type of manufacturing defect. So we try to take some of those barriers away from the consumer, the worry he might have of warranty or something along those lines. And the retailers, when they started interacting with us, knew that we took care of them we made it easy for them, then man, they they really would just even if they didn't have to go over and sell eyewear like you're talking about. If you're selling a hundred and fifty dollar sunglass, you've got to go over and sell it. You gotta unlock a case. You gotta tell everybody all about it. But ours is all open sell, pre priced. But you know, the shop guy would you know, they would ask, Hey, what about Tefosi? They'd be like, Oh my gosh, these guys are great. Their products are awesome. They stand behind it. They're they're the best thing we have. I mean we we heard that from Retailers and employees, day in and day out, and they really helped grow the brand in that way because we didn't have the marketing dollars to tell that story. We still don't, to be honest. Um, so that that footprint at retail and having them um, really understand what we're about and supporting them led to you know them passing on that goodwill will right on to the consumer.
0: All right. So, good looking display, quality product, and making sure that the retailers know what to tell the customer about the product.
1: Absolutely.
0: Right on. And then, how has the pricing changed? Is it, uh, I'll be honest, I haven't looked at what your pricing is currently. Is have they gone up, or do you still have a thirty dollars pair of good performance sports sunglasses?
1: Well, we have. Uh, we've actually done both. So we've gone up in price, and we we just in the last year we've opened up a lower price. So uh, what happened over the first probably four or five years is as we started to add more and more features things like photochromic lenses, adding a lot of adjustability, offering you know, really um, something that was a, a big step over what we had at $50. We ended up, we kind of settled in at around $69 for our kind of interchangeable and photochromic lens package, which in cycling retailers is still, has been our, our highest um, dollar area, where we still sell the most um, dollars are in that, in that category. Um, we offer in that same category, you know, stuff with single lens, it's the same frame, same lens technology, just didn't come with extra lenses, does not come photochromic, and those retail like 39 or $49. We even have a product that goes all the way up to 99, that's polarized and photochromic, that's primarily for the outdoor space. Um, so we did go up a little bit in price because our retailers were asking for more features, they were asking for more things, and that inched the price up a little bit, and they intended, ended up selling even more. Um, what well, we did launch about 18, well, no, it's not even 18 months ago now, it's about 14, 15 months, about 15 months ago now, is we launched a new lifestyle category. And um, that product, same frame material, so still a, a really light Gorilla Mid TR90 frame, still a polycarbonate lens that you can go run in, you can go ride in, um, you know, it's shatterproof. But it's a it's a lifestyle story. So we launched our first product was a, a model called the Swank. It's a, so basically a sport wayfarer. We put features like, you know, a, a rubber uh, nose pad on it. We did something special with the paint on the, the inside of the temples so that it wouldn't catch ladies hair, but it would give a little bit of grip. And we put all this into simple packaging it just comes with a cleaning bag and we're actually able to hit a $25 retail price point. And we, we really saw and we're hearing from our retailers and consumers, especially on the run side of our business to begin with, that they were looking for something that was a little more lifestyle oriented. We really, our demographic was 35 and up for the most part. We really weren't getting a lot of millennials that were buying uh, a technical product you know, with photochromic lenses. And this category has exploded for us in the last year and a half. Um, that's one swank model. We sold it at 25, and then if you want it polarized, it retails at 50. That one model became our number one seller in the very first year. In fact, it was 33% of our unit sales in
0: 2018.
1: Jeez. So we've expanded that, and it's really opened us up now. So we've always had this technical sports category that has been kind of what we built the brand around, but now we have a lifestyle category as well. And We've tried lifestyle products in the past, and they, they always managed to be you know, 3 know 4 5% of our total sales. They're probably, it probably would be half our sales um, in 2019 will be from the lifestyle and half of it would be from technical. And we're really helping the, the specialty sports guys, so it's cycling and, for instance, they weren't selling this category at all. So it's kind of like what you asked to begin with. We were, we were concerned about offering a 25 and a $50 sunglass and cannibalizing our $69, $79 retail uh, technical products. And we've seen that those products have softened up a tad. You know, they're down 3 or 4% from last year. But what we've seen is we've doubled the overall business in a lot of these stores because now they're selling this lifestyle product as well because they have that to offer. So somebody's coming in buying a cruiser, or buying an entry-level mountain bike. You know, in the running category, that's where really all the business is at this point. And we're seeing this new lifestyle category be a huge um, growth platform for us. Still consistent with what we started the brand on. It's technical, it's got bells and whistles, um, but it's got a little bit more lifestyle flair and it's still got that value for the consumer.
0: All right. Do you find it was a hard sell to move up the price? Because like, I'm thinking you know, like, that's why Toyota has the Lexus brand and Honda Acura, right? Because who's going to buy a $90,000 Honda or $90,000 Toyota that you know they have a premium brand behind it? So it's kind of like when you start at a low price point and then try and all of a sudden you have something that's like double the price. Was, that, was there a disconnect?
1: you know i think what we found uh there's there's a ceiling. you know that that we found um when we added features and the price would go up you know it started from 49 we ordered for some 59 nine dollar product and when you could explain to the retailer who really in our markets in cycling the retailer they are the the um they are the consumer as well so that's what's great about it If, if the retailer likes it and he he understands what you're doing then the consumer is too so we went from 49 to 59 you know, they saw we were adding features. We went from 59 to 69. They saw all the features that we we're adding. They saw, oh, now it's a photochromic lens, and that's still a tremendous value. So for us, we feel like, you know, we can sell a $100 sunglasses, no problem, but it has to be re- remain um, consistent with our, our value story. It needs to be, you know, less than by quite a large amount what that same product would sell for, you know, with the, the premium, the, the highest price brands. If they sell something at three hundred dollars, then yeah, we could sell something at ninety nine as long as we could show that there's a value to the consumer. Now we did launch, like you're talking about, a Lexus type of product about three years ago, uh, with a, what we called a Tefosy Pro category. And um, to be honest, it was a failure for us. It was a product that retailed at hundred and hundred fifty dollars. It was the most exciting. Um, Products, most bells and whistles. You could go from a full frame to a half frame to a shield, all in one sunglass. And you know what we found was it, it required our our retailer to have to work to sell it because they had to explain all of it. And you know that didn't work for our retailers like what we've always done. So that that particular category didn't didn't work for us once we got north of hundred dollars, um, despite the fact that we had a lot of value to it.
0: So let's talk marketing, the in-store. What do you do besides in-store? You said you don't sponsor pro athletes, which you know for people who don't understand that if you sponsor an athlete for, let's say, 50 grand, you probably should be spending about 300 grand on activation to let everybody know that you're sponsoring that athlete. Um, So yeah, that kind of stuff is super expensive. And I know we've been trying to get you guys to advertise on Bike Rumor for years, and that hasn't happened. So where are you putting your marketing dollars? Well, I mean,
1: we're putting we put in 100% of our marketing dollars, uh, as far as anything that's not related to POP. Um, we're focusing on SEO in a, in a large way. So, you know, when someone types in cycling sunglass or bike sunglass, we wanna be the first brand that shows up. We wanna get people to our website first. 75% of people who, you know, buy a sport product, they research it online first. So, you know, cycling sunglass, running sunglass, golf sunglasses, um, we've worked really hard on our SEO and our ads to drive to the point to where we're now the number one brand that pops up in a natural search, in a regular organic search for those terms. And that's where we spend um, the vast majority of our efforts. Um, You know, we do a lot with uh, an ambassador program on social media. So we find influencers um, in our particular sport and, you know, we're, we're giving them some small amount of product for them to promote Um, our brand on with their followers. And we found that that is a way that we're getting more impressions than we got in in traditional spins um, and more engagement than we did on traditional spins. So, you know, those two areas are probably where we're doing the most um, to try to, you know, with our, with our limited budget, that's really where it's going. You know, when we started in 2003, we did no advertising, to be honest. And then 2004, we did a small amount of print media and it grew from there. Um, but we stopped doing any print media, and we're not doing really anything in any referral websites at this point, uh, because we just we're not seeing that it's got the ROI that that we can measure and that we need.
0: Hmm. So the ambassador program, but you know the influencers and stuff. What do they get out of it other than a few free pair of sunglasses? Because it seems to me like you know a good influencer nowadays is probably worth more than a couple of pair of sunglasses. But awesome if you can find them, that'll do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're not finding, you know, we're not we're not getting, you know, what, uh, you know, the 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 largest influencers out there. I mean, those those individuals, they know how to monetize that at this point. Um, but we've taken the same approach as we took with sponsored athletes, is that it's product based. You know, we we do offer products to professional athletes, but we don't pay them. And we've been on the same we've been on the same mode with influencers. We find people that, you know, um, we've got some some moms who. Who have you know seventy thousand followers on their on their um, Instagram for you know their their running club. Um, we we've got a partnership with uh, Moms Run This Town, who um, you know they have local chapters all over, and you know we we just worked together with them on uh, a charity. Really is what we did with that organization to where we gave back to a specific charity that we're both excited about. Um, but it's really, you know, it's the same as, um, as the professional athlete side of it. We don't have the money to pay, you know, the large social media influencers out there to wear and promote our product. These are folks that have, you know, if they've got 20,000 followers then, or Facebook fans, then we're, we're, we're all about, you know, hitting them up with some product and, and you know, helping promote them as well.
0: Right. So what's the, the SEO side of it then, you know, for you to capture... Search traffic. There has to be something for the Google bot to crawl and find. What's like, what is your SEO strategy? What, where are you putting these keywords and other things that need to happen for the search engines to find you?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, it, and to say I'm an expert at it would be a far stretch, but. You know, we've worked with, you know, we we have a program now that kind of constantly monitors that, gives us suggestions on what we need to be placing in our key terms, making sure those are in all of our content, and then also generating content. So we're doing a monthly um, article that may have nothing to do with, you know, selling a pair of sunglasses. We did a, you know, tune up your bike, um, you know, article back in the spring, and then we had, later on, we had a tune up your eyewear article that went along with it. We we try to produce articles like what makes a great cycling sunglass and it doesn't have to be related to Tifosi. but we're pointing out what the features you should look for in a cycling sunglass or running sunglass or golf sunglass and by producing that content trying to get people to share that and then making sure that's available on our our site as well it helps all those reference points that the bots are using and and gets those pointing back to us when people are doing those search terms
0: Okay, so I'm looking at your website right now, and I don't, like, I, on the front page, I don't see anything pointing me to a blog or content or stories. What? Yeah,
1: go to, if you went to um, Fosi News, um, I think if you, there's a, I'm on my mobile here taking a look, but if you, there should yeah, be a it's search it's all the way part. at the
0: bottom. It's like in the links in the footer. I mean, it's not super yeah. obvious. So you, and, yeah, yeah you're producing. So, okay, so it's not once a month. You're producing something maybe... Three, four, five times a month—a story of some kind.
1: Right. and we're publishing those on our blog. We're publishing those on, on our social media platforms, and you know, also trying to get our influencers to repost those as well.
0: Okay, and that's it. That's what's driving traffic to your site and creating awareness for you guys, huh?
1: And I think the fact that we have so many retailers as well—you know—I, you know, I'm no expert on it, but I think the fact that a lot of retailers that are cycling or running or whatever the sport might be, carry our product, the algorithm with Google, you know, they they somehow picking up are picking up those reference points as well.
0: How much are you spending on SEO every month?
1: That's a good question. I really don't I don't know the dollar amount off the top of my head, uh so I'd have to I'd honestly have to look. Um it depends on how you how you pull all that in. Because you know when you do Google AdWords as well, say, if you're if you're actually using a cycling sunglass or bike sunglass or, or golf sunglasses, those help your SEO as well, um, knowing exactly what it is that, you know, how that percentage is that helps you. Um, so, you know, it's probably of our non-POP area between Google AdWords um, and really what we're doing to support it. I mean, it's, it's 90% of our budget there. Now, we're not talking about trade shows and consumer events and all those because trade shows are, uh, another massive line item on the budget
0: yeah so when you say ad words you're buying keywords so for instance if somebody searches right. like cycling sunglasses you would you have paid for some of that so some of the results that are showing up are not necessarily pure organic search results
1: correct but we want by doing that by doing those ad words it helps your organic search as well we saw that you know and basically in the last in the last year as we've invested more in them and as because when someone, you serve them up that ad, if they choose Tofosi, then Google or whoever it might be, they're, they're saying, oh, well, that's a good choice then. The person clicked it when they searched Cycling Sunglass, so that's a brand that is Cycling. So the more clicks you get off those ads, the more it helps your overall SEO. Hmm. So those are, those are tied together in some way. I'm, I'm certainly no expert, um, but they're definitely tied together in some way.
0: That's cool. So you, the way you make it sound is like you guys don't have a big marketing budget. You're still small, and but you guys just keep growing. And with 3,500 retailers, I guess in what U.S. or North America, um, you've got to be a pretty big company by now.
1: We're, I mean, we're actually a small brand. I mean, we have about 25 employees here uh, in Watkinsville. You know, we do have a lot, a lot of dealers. We got distribution in other countries, but. You know, when you talk about our category, you know, the largest sunglass company in the world is a $15 billion company now. Um, so, you know, our brand, it, we're, we, they don't even know we exist at this point. So I still consider us a small business. My wife and I are still here uh, day in and day out, every day, running the daily operations. She runs more operation stuff. I run more sales and marketing. Um, and so, you know, we're still a small company. Um, so, you know, that's uh, and that's okay.
0: What sort of market share do you have if you were looking just at cycling or just at running? You know, compared to say, um, Smith is you know what I wear most frequently, so it's the first that comes to mind. I know Oakley's in there, but I don't know if you can separate that out from all the other Oakley lifestyle. But you know, in terms of just outdoor, what
1: in so in cycling specialty, so in bike shops, uh, MPD produces data for that, and um, we do subscribe to it in Q1 of 2019. Uh, I believe our share was 71% Holy of cow. the sunglasses that they sell in a cycling store uh, are Tifosi. Now, does that mean, you know, we own 71% of every sunglasses sold to a cyclist in the U.S.? No. But the ones that are sold through cycling specialty retailers, uh, 7 out of every 10 pair that they sell are a pair of Hm.
0: That's impressive. I mean, that seems like pretty good business to me.
1: It is, but it's a small market, you know, compared to, say, Uh, general sporting goods or uh, outdoor those markets you know from a size of category are 10 times as large as what the cycling specialty market is but um you know we're 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 growing and and the cycling specialty sunglass business right now is, is growing as well
0: well that's good it's good to hear something's growing in the cycling business um and it, honestly, I, I say that sort of in jest. There's actually a lot of brands I talk to that are doing really, really well right now, or at least they say they are. Uh, it's funny. I was talking to another journalist who doesn't share my optimism on everything. And I was telling him, he's like, yeah, but that's just what they're telling you. I'm like, oh, man, I don't think they'd lie to me, <laughs> but no, it's good to hear well, that it's growing. <laughs> to be
1: perfectly honest, it's, a, it's been a challenging year for cycling, um, for sure. I mean, weather has not been great in a lot of the country, and nobody wants to complain about that, and there's a shift. You know, the road market is, is certainly much smaller than it was, you know, um, eight, nine years ago. But, you know, there's some signs of, of hope there. Um, you know, general accessory brands are not seeing, you know, growth this year. They're not seeing much growth. We've been fortunate in that we've got a new category that's, you know, with this lifestyle product that is um, promoting growth for us. But if we didn't have that this year, uh, we would certainly be down. Um, I have no doubt. Or we'd be flat. Um, and I think that's I think that's the general market right now with the independent um, cycling retailers, and you know, um, we all have to to continue to to kind of just work at it day on day out. I mean, it's hand to hand combat um, for them and for for you know all of us smaller brands.
0: Yeah. All right. I, I know we're coming up on the time. You got to head out. So I've got two questions for you. Um, you can answer them as quickly as you need to. The first is what sort of competition has come up? Because I feel like any brand looking at somebody who owns 70% of in-store market share would see that as an opportunity to come in and do something, either try and beat you at your own game. And start with that, and then we'll go to the next one if we have time.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, in the time we've been in business uh, since 2003, we've had a lot of brands come into the category. I mean, we've had – Specialized came out with eyewear. Um, Surface came out with eyewear. Um, Riders out of Canada was uh, launching really at the same time that we have. Um, I bet you there's been a dozen different um, brands. Yeah, and, Giro
0: tried. You know, they, they quit. Specialized quit.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, big brands with big budgets. And, um, you know, we focused on what we can do. Um, we try to do those three legs of the stool day in and day out, and it's just it's not as easy as it looks, right? If it was easy, everybody would do it. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've seen, uh, we saw in the, in the running market where we had 70 plus percent market share, uh, we saw another brand come in and, and really grew the category, um, in a lifestyle area that we weren't in business doing, doing business in, and we had to react with it. You know, fortunately for us, what it did is just opened up a new avenue of business that, that we were missing in the lifestyle category. So, um, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of things that go into being successful as, as a brand. And, you know, there's a, uh, it, it, it's a lot of hard work and it's, you know, you're constantly having to be uh, on it. So, you know, we're always looking at a uh, SWOT analysis every year and, and seeing who's out there and who could, could come into the category. But, you know, we try to service the dealers really well and make them happy and keep making them money. And if we do that and be easy for them to do business with, uh, it makes it pretty hard for a competitor to come in and say, Hey, we're just going to drop. Because, you know, it doesn't take a lot of work and, and, you know, we're easy. If we were a hard company to do business with or we made things difficult, then I think there'd be a lot more opportunity for folks.
0: Yeah. Okay, last question. How hard is it to move into a new category? Because you guys started out servicing bike shops. That was the market you were familiar with. And now you mentioned run and golf and lifestyle. Is it, is it hard to get into these other markets that were not something you were intimately familiar with?
1: Absolutely. Yes. I mean, running was a little bit more natural um, extension because we had sales reps who were calling on it. But when we started in the golf market, um, we saw the same hole in the market. But I didn't have, you know, me and my wife didn't have those rep relationships um, that we could pull on and get good salespeople to start with. So that's been a great market for us. And we're probably one of the top brands in that market now, but it took a lot longer to develop. And there's still some areas where, you know, we don't have... Um, we don't have the penetration in the market that we want. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot harder to go into areas uh, that are new because now, you know, someone goes on our, our website, they may see us as a cycling brand. And then they don't accept us as uh, having golf products or having lifestyle products. So um, it's very much a... Uh, a challenge. Um, it's a market challenge for us, because we've been really committed to doing eyewear only and not going into a lot of other categories for growth. You know, we could add other products that we sell to cycling. Um, but we've said, hey, eyewear is a big area. Um, it's a big market. And we have, we've got really good expertise in that area now. So let's stay focused on that and try to do these other markets. But there's, they're definitely much Uh, we're basically a startup again, every time we go into one of those markets.
0: Yeah. So how did you get into golf? What was like, what do you think was the tipping point where all of a sudden you had some acceptance, you were gaining retail? What, what triggered that?
1: Um, you know, we had a couple of, we we got some reps on board that did a really good job. In fact, for a very long time, our highest, um, grossing sales rep was the golf rep, uh, in the Southeast. And we, he had good relationship, got us into a couple of key accounts. Uh, getting Edwin Watts Golf on board at one point um, was probably a big tipping point because their catalog, much like in the day um, when we got our Colorado Cyclists and our performance bike catalog, the products that were in that, you know, that was, that was, uh, those were accepted. And so being in those type of areas, getting in those type of retailers, and you know, it's a one at a time type business. It's not like we just picked up. A lot of big retailers, all at one time. It's you know, you clip them off one at a time, and slowly it, it really builds the momentum, and, and that's uh that's really how that's gone for us.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I know you got to run, so.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you for your time, and um, we uh we appreciate you guys thinking about us.
0: Hey, thanks for tuning in. If this was your first episode of the Bike Roomer podcast, you caught this is kind of different from the usual mostly we're talking to the people behind the brands more about the products than the tech which is really our focus on bike with a few little you know tangents here and there just to keep it interesting hey if you enjoy this be sure to hit like and subscribe and leave us a comment on whatever podcast player you like the ones that give us the most benefit are Stitcher and, of course, Apple Podcasts is the king of them all, it seems. So if you could leave a review and a comment there, that would be amazing in helping us grow. And you know what? If you go to bikerumor.com slash podcast, you'll see a list of all the prior episodes that we've got. We've had some amazing interviews on there. And there's a link where you can fill in to let us know who you want us to interview next. That, and if you like the business side of this one, check out my business podcast, The Build Cycle, on any of your podcast players that you're listening to. Or you can go to tylerbenedict.com slash podcast and you'll find the full list of interviews over there, including a lot of bike and outdoor brands who I've interviewed the founders of, including Wolf Tooth Components and Strava and a ton more. So check those out. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep the rubber side down.